The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. So right now, we uh, just took my daughter, dropped her off in the education building. We've got 40 or 50 kids. It looked like there were about 12 kids in the, in the two-year-old room. We can pray for Chris and Megan Boland to be sane uh, after the next you know, 45 minutes. Um, there's a bunch of kids over there. There's a good number of adults. They're all hanging out over there. There's a variety of kids. So there's some kids who can literally do nothing for themselves. There's some kids who are capable of doing some things for themselves. There's kids who are babbling, crawling, walking, talking, some who can sit in a chair and eat their snack and listen to their story very orderly. But probably any of them over probably the age of one, definitely the age of two when they can start talking, probably any of you out there that are a parent of any of these children, at some point we face the age-old struggle of that toy is mine. I don't know if you've ever heard that. You, you probably have never struggled with that. If you are a parent, you've probably never had to deal with that. I was thinking when I was thinking about the word mine or my, in my head this week popped up Finding Nemo, uh, 2003 movie. There's this great scene where Nemo's dad and Dory, they're trying to find Nemo, you know, the whole premise of the, the movie. These pelicans are trying to help them, but they're not really sure if they're supposed to trust the pelicans. The pelicans are a little bit crazy. The pelicans keep putting the fish in their mouth, which obviously doesn't feel very safe because then they could just swallow them and then they would be gone. Then they're flopping around on this deck and they're fish out of water, which is obviously not great. They're trying to get away from the pelicans until they come to an immediate stop before one seagull. And then the, the movie zooms out and there are a bunch of seagulls and the seagull, the first one just says, mine. And the first seagull's trying to claim, these, these fish are about to be mine. And then every seagull starts claiming, if you've seen the movie, they just start going, mine, 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 mine. And they just start saying mine over and over again. I'm sorry if you have that stuck in your head for the rest of the day. Finally, this pelican swoops in. Their fish are about to be eaten, uh, but they are saved from the seagulls by this pelican. Now, mine, 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 all of us have struggled with this at some point, both personally and if we are a parent or a teacher or a volunteer in the kids' ministry or have interacted with nieces and nephews or have really done anything with children, you've probably dealt with the word my and mine. Audrey, uh, just in more recent days, they always, in preaching classes, they always caution you to tell stories about your kids. I'm going to tell stories about my kids till maybe they're like, two or three, like three or four until they can start to know. Audrey probably, you know, doesn't have a clue right now. But she's starting to use the word my and mine a lot more, especially with her brother. And I'm trying to teach her this is probably not the best thing. You don't own anything. None of these toys in here were bought by you. They are mine. They are your mom's. They are not yours. They are mine. That's probably not the best way to go about it. She could probably Jesus juke me and say, well, ultimately, they're all Jesus's, or God created them all, or, you know, whatever. She'll probably do that at, at some point soon. Sam, my little one-year-old, is starting to do the thing where he, like, offers you a toy, 
and he like wants you to go to grab it, and then he just pulls it right back to his chest, and he offers you a toy, and he pulls it right back to him. So he can't say, my or mine right now, but he is showing, this toy is mine, Daddy, don't take it. Now this morning, we're going to look at probably the most important use of the proclamation, my or mine. Not in a petty or trivial way, thinking about a kid proclaiming ownership over a toy, but really the most important use of the word my. Matthew 16, verse 18 is the whole premise of our uh, sermon series right now. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. This is Jesus speaking. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So in this series, we've taken the five words, I will build my church. And we're taking one week for each of the words, and this morning we are talking about the word my. Now my is obviously a possessive word. I am not great with English classes. A lot of you guys teach English or way better than me. It's a, it's a possessive personal pronoun. Hopefully I'm saying that correct. Jesus makes a strong claim of ownership over his church. I will build my church. So let's think about why this is the case and what this means from Acts chapter 20. We're going to scoot back a few verses from what Bobby read. We'll start in verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. We're going to stop there. That's, this is kind of the introduction to what is about to take place. Now Paul has been on a boat. He has sailed uh, past Ephesus into Miletus, and then the boat has had to stop. They've had to, they're starting to, they're having to load and unload cargo. This is not the 21st century, so to load and unload heavy pieces of whatever they're carrying just takes time. It takes some days. And so Ephesus, about 30 miles away, Paul decides to take the most use of this time and to call the elders to call these leaders of the church, a place that he spent time in, to come and be with him. And so he sends a messenger, he summons the elders, and he really wants to make the most use of this time. Now, in in verse 15, again, jumping back just a few verses, you'll see the use of the word we. So the word we, I didn't know this was, you know, this is going to be a personal pronoun, you know, lecture. We means there's the, the author, which is Luke, is with Paul, so we really are getting an eyewitness account of what is taking place and what Paul is doing. Now, the first thing to to kind of keep in the back of your minds for later on in our passage is the word elders, elders of the church, verse 17. Elders is the, the Greek word presbyteros, where we obviously get our word presbyterian. So he is calling the elders, these leaders of the church, to talk more. Verse 18, and when they came to him, he said to them, Paul is going to rehash kind of his ministry uh, that he did in Ephesus. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God 
and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So verses 18 through 21, Paul talks about his previous ministry in Ephesus. These elders, they, they finally arrive and Paul reminds the elders about what he did and how he did it with them. He talks about the manner of his life that he lived among them. He was humble. He was faithful in his service to the Lord. He faced sorrows and dangers at the hands of Jewish hostility, which is really interesting because he was one of those Jews before his conversion that was hostile towards Christians. And even still, facing this hostility, he has unceasing proclamation of the gospel, both in public and in private. And we've really seen this throughout Acts, the proclamation of the gospel in private and in public. Private, thinking about uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, thinking about um, Cornelius in, in Acts 10, but then there's also public proclamation where thousands of people come to faith in Christ. Paul did not shrink back from telling the truth and sharing what needed to be heard, even when it was hard. So what did he preach and teach to both Jews and Greeks? Verse 21. The first thing he talks about is repentance toward God. I love that phrase, repentance toward God. Repentance is a change of mind. Life has been spent running after oneself, and we have to have our minds changed. We have to have our hearts Change. This is all of us. We all are pursuing our own kingdoms, our own pleasures, our own selfish pursuits. But we need our whole lives changed to run after the one that we were created to live for. C.S. Lewis speaks of repentance as surrender. Repentance being surrender your life to God. In Mere Christianity, a book I've just been listening to over the last few weeks, it's, it's amazing, uh, just a great encouragement in thinking about the faith. Lewis says repentance is more than just eating humble pie. So it's not just like, oh yes, I'm, I'm not that great of a person, I'm, I'm pretty good, I haven't done things absolutely the best. It's realizing that maybe you aren't quite as good as you think you are. It, but it's not just that. It's something so much more difficult. Repentance is unlearning all of the self-conceit, the self-will that we have been building our entire lives since we were one year old and pulling toys back to ourselves. Repentance means killing part of yourself, undergoing a sort of death. Lewis says it takes a good man to repent. But the catch is only a bad person needs to repent and only a good person can do it perfectly. The worse you are, the more you need it and the less you can do it. Repentance, this turning, this submission is required. Repentance is the description of what going back to Jesus means. We must repent towards God. Go to him through the work of the Spirit, we must surrender our lives to Christ. So this is really a, a first tenet of what Paul preaches in terms of what it looks like to have salvation. Repent. 
the other part in verse 21, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we just said a bad man really can't repent. Well, our hope is a perfect Savior, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He is the one we put our hope in. He is the one who saves us and redeems us. He is the perfect man to look to. He is Lord over our lives, whether you want him to be or not. He will sit on the judgment seat and execute perfect justice. So the question is, will you be found in him? Repent and believe. Surrender your life And trust in the finished work of Christ. So this is one of the first key parts of the church being his. And I think it's a a blank in your bulletin. We belong to Jesus. We are his. He redeems us. All right, going on in verses 22 through 24, Paul is going to tell us a little bit about what his plans are. So he's talked about the past. He's going to talk about what his plans are in the future. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, and this journey is going to be kind of defined in two ways. He's being led by the Spirit first towards Jerusalem. But then he says in verse 22, he does not know exactly what is going to happen. He knows he's supposed to go to Jerusalem. That's where the Spirit's taking him. The Spirit's forcing him there, but he doesn't know what's going to happen. But then the second part of his journey is uh, defined by that the Spirit has shown him that no matter what city he goes to, imprisonment and afflictions await. So it's kind of, it's sort of funny phrasing. Paul is saying, I'm not sure what is going to happen when I get to Jerusalem, but the Spirit has shown me that whatever city I go to, I will go and face hostility, persecution, and imprisonment. This statement kind of felt like, uh, if you guys have, have ever made a, a statement like this, I don't mean to be offensive, or I don't mean any offense, but dot, dot, dot. And it's like, however you fill in the dot, 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 more than likely you are being offensive. So it's like, I'm not trying to be offensive, but, and that somehow caveats us from being able to then say something that is offensive. Your hair doesn't look very good, um, you're... you're Clothing is not the best, or you know, something more personal or something more broad. I don't mean offense, but dot dot dot, fill in the blank. Probably it's going to be offensive. Paul is saying, I don't know what's gonna happen. I'm supposed to go to Jerusalem, but whatever city I go to, persecution's gonna happen, hostility's gonna happen. And it's like, well, Paul, I, I think you kind of know a little bit of what's going to take place. Maybe you don't know all the details, maybe you don't know exactly how it's gonna flesh itself out, but Paul is going to Jerusalem to face hostility, to face difficulty. And he seems to, even though he says he doesn't exactly know what's going to happen, he seems to know some of what is going to come. So what motivated Paul to continue if he knew persecution was coming? 
I think for all of us, that might be a little bit difficult to go and pursue. If the Spirit was prompting us to go towards hostility, that might be a difficult thing to pursue. So what motivates Paul? Verse 24, Paul says and seems to believe one of the hardest things for us to ever embrace or believe. My life is not of value. My life is not precious to me. Now, Paul is not saying his life is pointless, his life is useless, his life is meaningless. We know from Genesis chapter 1, all human beings are created in the image of God and therefore are, they reflect God in some way, whether they are believers or not believers. All have value. So he's not saying that his life is, is uh, he is saying that his life is not his own, that he has been bought with a price. I do not value my own life because it is Christ. Paul's life belongs to Christ. Paul knows what's coming, but he wants to finish well the ministry Jesus gave to him. And so the same is true for us. My ministry, your ministry, our ministry as a church, it all comes from Jesus and we ultimately belong to him. I was at a, at a conference on, on Monday and uh, was Doug Mize, the pastor at Greer First Baptist, where we spent, uh, have spent a long time, was, uh, was talking a little bit and sharing a couple of questions. And a question that, that he asked for all pastors to think about for their members is, what is your mission in life? For a member of, of Ridgewood Church, for a person who is just here visiting this morning, what is your mission in life? For those of us who follow Jesus, if our mission is not to follow Jesus more closely, make him known, help others to know him, then you need to change. I need to change. We need to change as a church. We have received our calling from Jesus, and that is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That is the language Paul uses here. Paul's ministry, obviously different than ours, obviously he is very unique in church history, but in many ways his ministry is our ministry, to go and to testify to who Christ is. That is our mission in life. And why is that the case? So verses 22 through 24 are going to show us, similar to what those earlier verses show us, why is this the case? We belong to Jesus. We belong to Jesus. All right, let's read 20, verses 25 through 31, and that's where we'll, we'll close our passage for this morning. We're going to see here Paul's exhortation. Verse 25, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again. And that's, that's a sobering statement. None of you are ever going to see me again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. 
I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, not speaking, men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So verses 25 through 27, Paul is saying, I'm never going to see you guys again. People I love, people I've cared for, people I've shared the gospel with, people I've seen come to, come to faith, I'm never going to see you again. But he knows that he has fulfilled his ministry to them. He has done what he could because he has proclaimed the kingdom. He has proclaimed the whole counsel of God and he has made Jesus known. So he is able to say, I'm innocent of all blood. I've proclaimed Christ and him crucified. I've done what I could. And then we get to verse 28, which is really our our key verse for this morning. Paul gives a strong exhortation to these elders. Remember elders in verse 17. He's speaking to the elders of the church in Ephesus. Now it's easy to think that this is just for the elders. Now, we, we have five elders, and all of us are going to take this exhortation very strongly. We talk about this passage fairly regularly. But, but much of what this passage says, we all need to know and do as a church, based particularly on verse 28. Paul says, watch yourself. Be very careful with your life. Elders, watch your flock. Watch your people. Why? The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now we are seeing, we're in a study in the book of Acts that we're going to come back to uh, in the start of the new year. We are seeing the Spirit do a whole lot in this passage and throughout Acts. The Spirit has shown Paul where, is he, where he is to go. He's really forced him to go there in many ways. The Spirit has raised up overseers. The Spirit uh, has brought people to the faith. We've seen in in those first 10 chapters, 11 chapters in Acts, that he just keeps adding to the number day by day. So the Spirit is doing a lot. And then in verse 28, we get to the language, at least in the ESV. I recognize different of us maybe have different translations. The word there is overseers. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This is the word episkopos. This is where we get episcopal from. This is the word that is often used for bishop. So what are these elders who are overseers of a flock supposed to do? In the ESV it says the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. I have written directly over care in my Bible to shepherd the church of God. To care for or shepherd the church of God. So these elders, these overseers are to care for, shepherd or the word, pastor their flock. So it's interesting in thinking about these three words, one in in a verb form, two in a noun form, these words seem to be used interchangeably to talk about one group of people. So in Acts and other scriptures, this is one of the reasons that, that in our body we use elder Overseer, we don't actually really use. It's not maybe super helpful in our contextual uh, area. But we use elder, overseer, and pastor, shepherd 
interchangeably. Acts 20, verse 17 and verse 28 use all of these words to refer to the same group of people. Titus chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 5 do the exact same things. 1 Timothy chapter 3, anytime we raise up a new pastor, we talk about the qualifications that show up in 1 Timothy 3. But it doesn't actually say pastor or elder in 1 Timothy 3. It says overseer, the same language that Paul uses here. So the elders, pastor, shepherd, oversee God's church. So on your bulletin, one of the blanks is ultimately the church is God's church. In verse 28, to to care for the church of God. God is the owner. God is the one who possesses. God is the one who can say, mine or my church. It belongs to him. But who is God according to verse 28? The last little section which he or which God obtained with his own blood. Ding, ding, ding. Who is the one that obtained the church with his own blood? Who gave his blood for the church? It is Jesus. Jesus is God. The church is Jesus's. What does Paul mean that he obtained the church with his blood? Each and every one of us have a ginormous debt, a debt we cannot pay because of our sin. We have rebelled against a holy, perfect, gracious, wrathful, forgiving, just God. In many ways, that's a tension to manage. How is God wrathful and perfect and holy and also forgiving and merciful and gracious. In our men's theology class this past Wednesday, we we talked about a whole host of God's characteristics. And in many ways, God is totally other. He is not human. So he is able to hold these characteristics perfectly together. So there's a debt we cannot pay. We cannot get out of this debt unless it is paid for, but we cannot pay it. Or really, the only way we can pay it is with our lives, or if a perfect sacrifice is made. And so ultimately, the sacrifice is done by Jesus paying, giving the payment with his blood. Jesus obtained the church, obtained you, obtained me with his blood. He possesses the church, he owns the church, he obtains the church, Because of what he has done all through his own blood. And this brings us so much hope. All of us in here in some way or at some time in life, maybe we're we're trekking in here this morning. We're going through pains. We're going through hardships. We're going through trials. Times when God feels very far off. Maybe it's because of natural, personal, familial disasters difficulties, whatever it is, I would encourage you to turn to Jesus. Turn to Christ. See him for all his glory. Now, we don't know why something happens. Why did this happen? Why did that happen? We can't answer all of those questions. And we don't need to trivialize the difficult things 
that we go through thinking that we are going to find out, thinking we're going to get an answer to every question we could ever ask. But what do we know? We know that Jesus suffered the greatest injustice there has ever been. Why did he do that? For you and for me and for us. To obtain his church, his people. To care for them. To pay the price that you and I could not pay. To use the language Paul uses here. To care for his people. To shepherd his people. Going on, verses 29 and 30. Paul says, people are coming who will twist what is true and speak what is false. All to draw away followers of Jesus. There are going to be people who who speak that which is against the gospel, against what Paul has taught to draw people away. And so therefore, we must pay attention. Verse 31, this is Christ's church. It must remain pure. The elders need to watch you and pay careful attention. And you guys need to do the same. Paul so cared for these people, so cared about the truth, so cared about Christ, that he proclaimed eagerly in Ephesus, remember, pay attention, be careful, remember the truth of the gospel, remember what Christ has done. And in verse 31, Paul encourages them to walk closely with God and know his word of grace. Not only to know the words of God, but to know the word of God, the logos of God, Jesus. Know what God says and know the true word of God, Jesus. As the church, we are a flock. Jesus shepherds us. So therefore, we belong to Jesus. That's what these closing verses show us. We belong to Jesus. Jesus is the chief shepherd. Jesus is the chief shepherd of this church and all churches. So we we have seen that the church belongs to Jesus. Let's think about three points of application from that. The church belongs to Jesus. So, number one, proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Verse 21, verse 24, verse 25. We preach the gospel of the grace of God. This is our responsibility as a church. And therefore, we want to go and meet our neighbors. Meet our neighbors at 407 Ridgewood Drive. Meet our neighbors in whatever community you live in. Coworkers, friends, family. Our only hope is Christ and Him crucified. And we want to proclaim that. Number two, prioritize the whole counsel of God. Prioritize the whole counsel of God. And therefore, that is why much of the time, most of the time in our our, uh, teaching, in our preaching, we are just going to walk through a passage of Scripture. All of the time we're going to do that, but much of the time we're just going to walk through books of the Bible. We need what the law says. We need what the prophets say. We need the gospel. We need Paul's epistles. We need revelation. We need it proclaimed over us. We need to ingest it. We need to read it. We need to listen to it. 
So proclaim the gospel, prioritize the whole counsel of God, and lastly, love his church. Love Jesus's church. This is not our church. This is Jesus's church. Pay attention. Care about how our church functions and operates. I know it is not one of the most attractive things to do, but we require all members to read our church constitution because we want you to know how our church operates, how our church functions. The church ultimately belongs to Jesus, but Jesus in his grace gives his church elders, deacons, and members. So we as a church, we we like to say we are elder-led, deacon-served, and congregationally ruled. We believe that the Spirit works in each of the members of our church, which is why we believe in regenerate church membership or meaningful membership. We want people who are members of our church, who are going to affect the direction our church goes, what we do, what we love, you know, where we want to go, what we want to be. We want each and every one of us to be regenerate, to be born again, to be walking by faith, with Christ. And then as the Spirit leads us individually, He leads us corporately. We trust that the Spirit leads the body as He fills each member. And therefore, that's why we we vote on direction-shaping decisions for our church, because we see the Spirit filling all of us. Deacons serve the church. Our deacons, their kind of three primary roles are blessing, benevolence, and bereavement. We want them to serve the church, to serve the body. And then elders teach, lead, guard, protect the church. From wolves, from false teaching, we cherish the whole counsel of God. Our job is to protect you and to protect the church. And you might say, Aaron, I don't need protecting. I don't need shepherding. Yes, you do. Satan is waiting to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus, in his kindness, gives shepherds to his church. And we see in the scriptures that this is all, even this language here, it's all plural. And so it seems ideal to have a plurality of elders. So the elders and then the church as a whole, having a plurality and then you guys help protect the elders as well. And so we are blessed in the season to have five. And we try to take our job and take these exhortations in this passage very, very seriously. But ultimately, the church belongs to Jesus. Not the elders, not the deacons, not the highest donor, not the best giver, not the longest standing member, not a senior pastor, not a teaching pastor, not a committee, not you, not me, but Jesus. Jesus bought the church. He paid the price. It all belongs to Jesus. May we bring him glory in making him known from 407 Ridgewood Drive to the ends of the earth. So the question I would leave for you guys just to think on as you go throughout today and throughout the week, what is your mission in life? What are you giving your life for? Is it for Christ? Is it for building up his church? Or is it for yourself. Let's pray.
God, we come to you so grateful that you have given us your word. You have given us the whole counsel to soak in, to saturate in, to have affect our hearts and to affect our minds and to affect the way we live. Jesus, we thank you that you have bought us with a price. That this church, along with Resurrection Church and Greer First Baptist and Victor and all the other churches around us, we all belong to you, Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would help us as a church to bring you glory. Lord, help us to see that we belong to you. Each and every decision, minute decisions, huge decisions in the life of our church and in our own personal lives, Lord, let them be directed for your glory, for the mission of making Christ known, of making disciples of all nations, of seeing people worship Jesus, of seeing witnesses sent throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Lord, help us to be your witnesses here at 407 Ridgewood Drive and to the ends of the earth. And Lord, we do pray that we would bring you glory in the way we live personally and as a church. We love you. Amen.